I'll pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we continue to look into the book of Leviticus this morning, um, this is a hard book. It's one that we are in many ways far away from, far removed from. Uh, We pray, though, that as we study it, you would help us understand it. I pray that you would give me clarity as I teach, and that we would see how this book, like all the rest of the scriptures, points us to the Lord Jesus. For it's in his name that we ask and pray. Amen. All right, so the book of Leviticus, well, actually, let's go back to Exodus, review from yesterday. Exodus ends with the construction of what? Tabernacle. Tabernacle. God's glory has been on Mount Sinai, and at the very end of Exodus, God's glory comes off of Mount Sinai and goes onto the tabernacle, and it is so intense, so bright, that Moses can't even enter into it. And the book of Leviticus begins with God speaking to the people from the tabernacle. And all of a sudden, all right, since the beginning of Genesis, uh, we have, in, in, in the beginning of Genesis, God's people were in God's presence. Since then, they've not been. And now, all of a sudden, there is a way for God to, God's people to be near God. The tabernacle is going to be right in the midst of the camp of Israel. And uh, God's presence is going to dwell among them. And the book of Leviticus is basically a call to holiness. You need to uh, do differently than how Adam and Eve did. If you want to keep the blessing of God's presence, you need to be holy as God is holy. Now, will Israel fall short of that? And the first five and a half chapters of the book deal with that. The sacrificial system reminds them of their sins. It reminds them that they need something to die as a substitute in their place so that they can be right with God. And we mentioned yesterday, did those sacrifices in the book of Leviticus ever save anybody? No. All that they did is they pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ. They reminded the people sin deserves death. Something needs to die in your place. And the book of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats never saved anybody. Instead, what they were doing is they were pointing forward to the one sacrifice that could save, which is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ended yesterday by talking about how there's a lot of really strange, weird laws in Leviticus. And one of the things that we have to acknowledge as we are studying this book is that a lot of times you can't just pick up all of the commandments in Leviticus and carry them into the world today and say, we apply them right now, right? Do we offer sacrifices? No. No. Uh, We live in a very different culture than the culture uh, that Leviticus was written into. Uh, How many of you live on big farms? Maybe a couple of you guys do, but most of you probably don't. So there's a lot of stuff in Leviticus about how you should conduct your farm. And a lot of those laws are going to be things that are confusing to us. Almost everybody back in the days when Leviticus was written and, and in the days of ancient Israel could obey that those laws to one extent or another, right? But we have, our families have a lot of different professions. My, my, my family, uh, I did not grow up. With my parents being farmers, they were school teachers. And so a lot of times what we need to do in Leviticus is we need to look at these laws and we need to ask the question, what is the principle behind the law? So, for instance, an example I like to use a lot is in Leviticus, there is a command that the edges of your field, you should not harvest them. So you have a big, uh, a big field, let's say you're growing wheat. You, you guys have passed wheat fields here in Dayton, right? Or if you've been to the Midwest, you've passed a bunch of corn fields, right? You've got wheat or you've got corn, all right? One of the laws in Leviticus is don't harvest along the edges of your field so that those who are poor in the community, uh, for one reason or another, maybe they're sick and, and that keeps them in poverty, maybe something else is going on, they can come along and they can harvest the edges of your field and they can have food for themselves and for their family. What would be the principle behind that law uh to get rid or to help with yeah help the poor take care of the poor so whenever we look at that commandment we maybe don't have fields of wheat or corn that we can do that with but the heart of that commandment the principle behind that commandment is care for the poor is caring for the poor something that the new testament still tells us to do yes 
Yeah. So that law still matters in, in a way to us. There's still a moral principle, a moral command there that God wants his people to observe and obey. But maybe the exact way Israel was doing it is not the exact way that we can do it. We live in a different time and a different culture different jobs, right? So the principle behind the law might still matter, even if the exact way of, of, of going about caring for the poor has changed in a way. So we have to be careful whenever we read Leviticus to be very thoughtful about, about things like that. Um, today, at least uh, to begin with, we're going to talk about um, a two-chapter section in Leviticus that you guys read recently. There were two chapters, Leviticus 13 and 14, that dealt with laws concerning leprosy. Do you guys know what leprosy is? Is it it like a white disease? Sort of. Leprosy um, today, whenever we talk about leprosy today, we talk about this really extreme disease called Hansen's disease. Um, Hansen's disease and biblical leprosy are not necessarily the same thing. So the way that we think about leprosy and the way that leprosy was thought about in the Old Testament, it's not exactly the same, right? You guys know sometimes words change meanings over time, right? Um, so uh, back, in, back in the olden days, uh, if you were sitting uh, around the dinner table, um, you might look at your grandma and say, pray pass me the mashed potatoes. You would, be, you would basically be saying, I'm asking you to pass me the mashed potatoes. The word pray was a very general term like that, right? Whenever we use the word pray, what do we mean by it? Yeah, talking to God, right? Uh, pray, the word pray for a long time in the English language just, made to make, just meant to make a request, to ask somebody for something. And, and over time, the meaning of that word has kind of narrowed down. And so over time, word meanings sometimes change. What leprosy was in the Old Testament was much more broader than what it is to us. Leprosy is just kind of any skin disease. But a lot of times whenever the Bible mentions leprosy, it is a really, really bad skin disease, right? It's one that doesn't just like kind of look bad, but it's one that, that can really hurt you too. In its most extreme forms, which is what we'll focus on today, what leprosy does is it, it basically kills the nerves in your body. All right? Your nerves in your body, what, what do they make you feel? Pain. Pain. So uh, leprosy, uh, in its most extreme forms, takes away your ability to feel pain. Now, that sounds cool right off the bat. What would be the issue with that? Yeah, you might not know if you're bleeding, right? You might not know, okay, I'm actually injured right now, but I'm, I wasn't aware of it. You're walking, you, you remember these people live um, in kind of, imagine that you live kind of in a rural area and you have leprosy, all right? And you go walking near a thorn bush and you could get scraped and it could be bleeding and you might not know it. You might not feel it. And if you let a cut go untreated too long, what will that cut become? Infected. Infected. And, and so a lot of times what happens with people who have really extreme forms of leprosy is they'll get injured and they don't feel pain so they don't treat it. And this winds up doing something really terrible to their body. If you feel pain, you want the pain to stop. So it makes you try to get better. Lepers kind of lose the ability to do that. So... Uh, I've read stories before of leprosy is, is curable today. In biblical times, it wasn't. But there are parts of the world, even today, where the cures for leprosy are not readily available. So I've read stories of lepers who go to sleep and, and they have to buy cats for whenever they go to sleep. You know why? The places in the world where they live, the, the sanitation is not very good, and they'll lay down and go to bed, and a little rat will come up and start nibbling on their, on their pinky, and they don't feel it. And they wake up and their pinky's gone. Okay. I've read other stories of lepers, really extreme cases of lepers, that get into food service. Because, uh, well, number one, you don't really want a leper touching anything you're going to touch, right? Uh, because the disease at times, um, it's transmitted... People used to think it was much more contagious than it actually is. It's, it's translated mainly through spittle. So, like, I'm up here talking, 
And if I'm talking and a little bit of spit, you may not, you may be, I won't even see it. Like a little microscopic stuff goes out. If, if that, if that goes out and gets into your body, you could get leprosy that way. Um, but there are in certain places of the world, lepers will work in food service or other professions uh, like ironsmith uh, or, or some blacksmith, something like that, that deals with fire. You know, if, um, if you guys have been to McDonald's, you know they put the fries down in all the really hot oil. Yeah. Lepers sometimes get into services where you deal with fire or really hot oil like that because if, uh, if some of that oil got on you, what would it, what would it feel like? Burn. It would yeah. hurt really bad. Lepers will just stick their hands down in it. But over time, what's that going to do to them? Destroy their hands. Destroy their hands and their arms. All right? So lepers, um, over time... What happens to them a lot of times is they start missing appendages. Uh, sometimes if they get like a cut on their face that gets infected, like part of their face will, will start to disintegrate, right? Um, the, um, you guys probably know that uh, a few, I don't know if this show is still on TV, but a few years ago there was this television show, The Walking Dead, that was about zombies. That term, Walking Dead, was first applied to lepers. That's where they get the phrase walking dead from. That's actually where we get the concept of zombies from. In the, in the Middle Ages especially, the way that you kind of think of zombies, like these, they're, they're kind of dead, they're kind of alive things that are really horrific to look at. That's how lepers were viewed, right? That's, that's, that's where the idea of zombies comes from. Um, in biblical times, lepers were considered unclean. Now, this word unclean is really important. It's a, it's a, we need to kind of talk about it for a minute. Um, uncleanness in scripture is often a symbol of sin. To be unclean is not necessarily sinful. So let me talk about that for a minute. Um, sin leads to what? Death. So dead things are considered unclean. And if you touch a dead thing, guess what you are considered? Unclean. unclean. Now, throughout the, the Old Testament, there are commands to care for your father and mother. And the last way that you care for your father and your mother, you know what the last way to care for them is? To, to go through a funeral for them, provide burial. Now, if you're going to bury your father and mother, guess what you are going to become? You're going to become unclean because you're going to have to touch that, that dead body, right? So God's law is actually telling you to do that, even though it's going to lead to uncleanness. So uncleanness is a picture of sin. It's a symbol of sin. Are you necessarily sinning whenever you become unclean, though? No. No. All right? So it, uh, this is not to say anybody who is unclean is in a state of sin, but uncleanness is a picture of sin. The Bible's going to use it as a symbol for sin. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So lepers are considered unclean. And since this disease, to one degree or another, is contagious, um, they have to live outside of the camp. They have to live away from the rest of the people of Israel. They're separated from the people of God. All right? So they have to live in their own communities, separated from the people of God. Um, to go to the tabernacle, not only into the Holy of Holies, um, but to go into any part of the tabernacle, including the outer court, guess what you need to be? You have to be clean. You have to be in a state of cleanness. So not only are lepers separated from the people of God, guess what else they're separated from? They're separated from, uh, yeah, they're separated from the tabernacle. Uh, they're separated from God's presence. So are the lepers going to be able to go to all the feasts and festivals at the tabernacle? No. Are they going to be able to go there to offer sacrifices and worship? No, they're separated from the tabernacle because they're in a state of uncleanness. Um, whenever a leper is walking down the road, if, if another person is also walking down the road, the leper has to cup his, his hand over his mouth 
so that his spittle doesn't go flying everywhere. And he has to yell, unclean, 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 so that people know he's coming from a, from a, from a while off. He constantly has to say that about himself. And if a leper is going down the road and he gets tired, he can't sit anywhere where another person might sit. Because if a leper touches anything, guess what the thing becomes? Unclean. It doesn't matter if he touches a wall. That wall's unclean. If he touches a chair, the chair's unclean. If he touches you, you're unclean. If he touches a rock and then you sit on the rock, you're unclean because the rock's unclean. Anything he touches becomes unclean. Any work that he does is an unclean work. He's separated from the people of God. He's separated from God's presence in the tabernacle. And what will leprosy, especially if it's one of these really intense cases, what will leprosy lead to? Death. Death. It's something that kills. So throughout scripture... Leprosy shows up several times. We're going to see one very soon. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But one of the characters that we have been going over in our stories so far is going to become a leper for about eight days. All right. So uh, we're, going to, we're going to see a leper very soon in the book of Numbers. We're going to see several more whenever we get into Kings and Chronicles. Not right now. There are many, many, many lepers that come to Jesus in the Gospels. And in these stories, we should see lepers and leprosy as a symbol of of sin and sinners. The Bible says the same thing about sin that it says about leprosy. You You could call sin your spiritual disease, your spiritual leprosy. Sin makes you unclean. Sin separates you from God and therefore also separates you from the people of God. And sin leads to death. And anything that a sinner does is tainted by sin. The works that they do are also unclean works. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Matthew 8, 1 through 4, there's a leper who comes to Jesus. And I want to talk to you about this story because I think it's a very, very important one. Um, In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus preaches a long sermon that is called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching to some people who have really bad ideas about how you get saved. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching to people that think, yeah, uh, he's preaching to people who think that you're saved by how good you are. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is, is preaching to people that think that you get saved by being a good person, by doing good works. Is that how you get saved? No. no. You're saved by God's grace. And so what has happened is these people that Jesus is preaching to, they've taken the Ten Commandments and other parts of God's law, and they've kind of watered it down. Jesus wants to correct that. He wants to show what God's law demands, and he wants to help people see that they have not met those demands and that they can't be saved by their own goodness. We've not gone over this before, have we? So in, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a statement. Um, he, he makes several statements that we call the Beatitudes. Have you heard of these before, these yeah. blessed statements? One of them says this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the people who are pure in heart. They'll get to see God. What would be the flip side of of that statement? Blessed are the pure in heart, uh, for they'll get to see God. Uh, Cursed are those who are what? Not pure pure in heart, because what will will they not be able to see? They won't be able to see God. So his audience is supposed to listen to that, and they're supposed to hear this. Blessed are the pure in heart, they get to see God. Cursed are the impure in heart. They won't get to see God. And they're supposed to think to themselves, well, am I pure in heart or am I impure in heart? 
Another statement, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. What would be the flip side of that? Cursed are the the unmerciful, because what will they not receive from God? Mercy. Mercy. Do you want mercy from God? Yeah. All right. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. How many of you are peacemakers with your siblings at home? I'm a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Cursed are those who don't make peace, because they will not be considered children of God. So Jesus goes through these statements, and then, um, you know, maybe there's somebody in the crowd who says, okay, well, I'm not always pure in heart, but I'm usually pure in heart. I'm not always a peacemaker, but I am a peacemaker most of the time. Not with Jeff. I'm not a peacemaker with Jeff. I hate that guy. But with everyone else, I do a pretty good job of making peace. Jesus picks back up in his sermon, and he says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? All right? If you, if you, have, if you have salt, you use salt to, to preserve food in the ancient world. We use it for flavor. You use it to preserve food in the ancient world. But eventually, after you use salt a couple of times to preserve food, it's not, it doesn't do its job anymore. All right? So if, if basically he's saying, all right, you have salt, and, it, and it's been working. It's been doing what it's supposed to do. But if it stops preserving the food, what are you going to do with the salt? You're going to toss it out. You're going to throw it out. Can you make it do, can, can you make it, can you restore it, basically? You can't get it to the point where it's supposed to do what it's supposed to do anymore, right? Um, you know, you might think about it as, uh, as, like, think about milk, right? You use milk in your cereal, all right? Once milk gets to the point where it starts smelling bad, can you make it fresh again? No. No. So what Jesus is basically saying is, okay, um, you person in the crowd, you're a peacemaker most of the time, not with Jeff, though. All right? You're a peacemaker most of the time. But if peacemakers stop making peace, how can you really call them peacemakers? You're the pure in heart. You're saying I'm pure in heart most of the time. But if someone who's pure in heart stops being pure in heart for a little bit, how can you really call them pure in heart? He goes on. These people are, are students of the scribes and Pharisees who were some of the bad guys in the New Testament. But these guys, the scribes and Pharisees, are kind of the Bible teachers. In the, in the minds of the crowds... These are the people that know God's word the best and are kind of the, the most holy. And Jesus looks at them and says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So think about that. Uh, your pastor at church, your, your, your really godly grandpa that you respect a lot, whoever it is that is kind of like your example of, of spirituality, Jesus points at that person and says, unless you're better than them, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Some of you guys have had me for math in the past. Uh, use it like this. Um, you know, we're, we're going over math problems on the board, and we're going over one of your tests, and Mr. Wrench comes in and says, all right, tomorrow, you guys are going to take your test. Mr. Gravit, your teacher, is also going to take it, the same test, and unless you guys score better than he does, you all fail. Yeah. Would that be good news? Yeah. No. No, I would. would not be good news, right? So uh, Jesus is saying the teachers aren't good enough, and that's really bad news for the students, isn't it? He goes on and he talks about the Ten Commandments, and somebody in the crowd might say, "Well, I've never committed adultery before. I can check that one off. Never broke that commandment." And Jesus says, "Well, even if you've lusted after somebody in your heart." You've committed adultery with them in your heart. You've broken the commandment. Well, I've never murdered anyone. Well, if you've ever been unjustly angry with somebody, you've murdered them in your heart. You've broken that commandment. He goes on, and the thesis statement of the entire Sermon on the Mount is this. He, uh, he takes Leviticus 19.2, Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy, and he intensifies it. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How holy do you have to be to be following God's law? Perfectly holy. So, um, if you were in that crowd and you heard that sermon, and the big thesis statement is, okay, you think that your good works are what is saving you. Here is what the law demands. If you want to be saved by your good works, you know how good your good works have to be? Perfect. 
If you're in the crowds listening to that, how are you going to feel? If you think that, that salvation is determined by how good you are, and Jesus looks at you and goes, are you perfect? What's the answer? How are you going to feel after hearing that sermon? You want to know how the crowds felt? It said, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. What does astonished mean? They were shocked. They were surprised. The word in, in, in Greek is a little bit stronger. It's a compound word, ekpleso. And ek in Greek means from or out of. And pleso means senses. So they were out of their senses, or the way that we would say it is they were scared senseless. You ever been scared so bad like you can't even react? That is how the crowds feel. I have a story of a time that I felt ekpleso, scared out of my senses. I was at Bryan, and uh, if you guys know how Bryan College is set up, uh, the front of the library um, you know, if you're, if you're on the campus side, not the parking lot side, the front of the library right there, there are these flower beds in front of it. And over, uh, I think it was a Thanksgiving break one year, I stayed up there and was working and I was taking pine needles and putting the pine needles in the, in the flower bed. And so I'm over there working and um, there's no trees uh, near that place and it was a really hot autumn. So sweating really badly, there's no shade. Um, I have one buddy who is down on the other end of the library also uh, doing the pine needles, throwing those down on the flower bed. And all of a sudden, I hear a kaboom! And it's really close to me, and it is so loud. Sometimes people will, will drive the maintenance vehicles on the sidewalk. I think someone has driven the maintenance vehicle right beside me on the sidewalk, and a, ty- a tire has blown up. And so I drop the pine needles and I jump and I turn and I look and on the ground a few feet away from me is a squirrel that is all crumpled up. And um, like I said, there's no trees close by that it like, could have fallen out of. And this thing, like I'm thinking it's dead. Like it is like, you know, laying there on the ground. And so I kind of look at it and then it starts twitching. I'm like, oh, no, it's not dead. And it starts twitching, and then it finally, like, kind of gets up. I guess it gave itself a concussion. It kind of gets up and stumbles for a second and then goes running off. And um, how did it get there? I have a couple of theories. Um, the, the dark theory is um, that that squirrel was having a, a, a real bad day and climbed to the top of the library and said, this is, this is it, um, and, just, and just went for it. Um, uh, the the other theory, which is probably a little bit, yes, sir. No, just whenever you need to. That's today, right? Second period. Second. Yeah. What time? Second period. Beginning of second period. Yeah, nine oh five. A little too excited. Okay. Um, <laughs> the uh, the second theory, which I think is potentially better, oh, it's less dark. Um, Someone hit a tree. Could have been a flying squirrel that was gliding and lost. Lost the hair. Oh my, my, my buddy, though, like I was really scared. I was the only person who saw it, and it scared me bad. I kind of screamed a little bit. But my buddy at the other end of the library also saw it, and he came walking over, and I said, "Did you see the squirrel?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "What in the world?" And he goes, "I think that was Scrap returning from space. You guys have seen Ice Age, right?" So, yes. Ooh, I have never thought of that. That would be interesting. Ah, lucky squirrel to get away. Um, so I, um, in that moment, I was ekpleso. There was a squirrel that exploded out of the sky right beside me. Uh, you know, a few feet to the to the right, and it would have probably killed me. It hit me straight in the head. Um, Mackenzie, how did your husband die? Uh, yeah, a squirrel like came flying out of the sky and hit him in the head. Um, which, like, honestly, not a bad way to go. Like, I mean, I mean, if the Lord wants to take me early, I at least hope it's that. Like, like, I mean, I feel like people would be sad at my funeral. I hope they would be a little bit. But also, like, that would be really kind of funny. Like, uh, you know, you go to college and you have two truths and a lie. Uh, uh, you know, here's my first truth. Here's my second. Uh, and, and,
and, and also, my high school Bible teacher died because a squirrel fell out of the sky and hit him in the head. <laughs> you know, um, I would—if that ever happens, you were free to use that in uh, two truths and a lie. But um, so these people, though, they are scared senseless by Jesus' sermon. They have thought we're saved because of how good we are. And Jesus has said, if you want to be saved by keeping the law, the standard of God's law is perfect holiness. Otherwise, uh, you've fallen short of God's glory, and you have sinned, and sin doesn't lead to salvation. It leads to death. Well, right after that story, that's in Matthew 5 through 7, right after that story, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, um, Jesus leaves the mountain where he's been preaching and all the crowds are kind of freaked out and they just keep following him. And suddenly in in Matthew chapter 8 verse 2 it says behold a leper came to him and knelt before him saying Lord if you will you can make me clean. How do you think all of the crowds reacted when a leper came walking up to him. Yeah. Ah! You don't want to get away from this guy, right? This guy is the epitome of uncleanness. People want to avoid him. He is a picture of, of, of dirtiness. He is a picture of death. He is a picture of how, you know, like I said, the scriptures use this as a symbol for sin. Uh, he is a, a picture of the horrors of sin. And the crowds aren't going to want to be anywhere close to him. But this leper, who is so unclean, and everything he does is unclean, everything he touches becomes unclean. This guy comes to Jesus and he kneels down before him and he says, Lord, if you will, if you want to, you can make me clean. And in verse 3, Jesus stretches out his hand and touches the leper and says, I will. I want to be made clean. And immediately, what happens to the guy's leprosy? It goes away. Immediately it's gone. Jesus doesn't become unclean in this story. Because whenever he touches a leper, you know what's true? The guy's not a leper anymore. Whenever Jesus touches the guy, is the guy unclean anymore? No. He's clean. Jesus' purity makes him pure. Jesus' cleanness makes him clean. Yeah. Yeah. So what I want to touch on for the next, the, the last part of class, is what Jesus says right after that. All right? This guy, by the way, in the ancient world, is there any cure for leprosy? No. No. There's no cure. There is nothing this guy could have done for himself. In the Old Testament, there is not a single, we'll talk about this as we go through the Old Testament, there is not a single prophet who can do a miracle and cleanse lepers. Anytime a leper wants to be cleaned, the people have to appeal to God. It is something only God can do. There is no cure in biblical times for this. The only one who cleanses lepers is God himself. Um, if, a le- if a person thinks that they have leprosy, do you remember who they go and see? The priest. And the priest will examine it, and the priest cannot make the person clean the, the priest, all he can do is say, you are clean or you aren't clean. Can he change the person's status? He can only say what they are. This, this leper comes to Jesus, and he has been told you are unclean. He is unclean. But he kneels down before Jesus and says, I think you can change my status. I think that you can take me from being unclean and that you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I'm willing to do it. I want to. And Jesus touches him and makes him clean. Now, once again, leprosy is a picture of what? And, and, and sin, right? So all of these people that are watching this miracle have just heard a sermon where they thought, oh, we're pretty good people. We can earn our salvation. And Jesus said, no, you're a sinner. What does this miracle mean for those people? They've just heard what big unclean sinners they are, but Jesus is willing to take care of the leper's uncleanness, what can he do for the crowds as well? He can make them clean. He can take away their sin problem if they come to him the same way the leper did. If they kneel before him and say, Lord, make me clean, Jesus says, I'm I'm willing. I want to be made clean. Um, After 
Jesus heals the guy, though. He gives the guy kind of a strange command. He says, go and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a proof to them. He says, go to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a proof to them. Now, this is what is kind of strange about this. Um, The gift that Moses commanded is found in Leviticus 13 and 14. If a priest in the Old Testament was somehow miraculously healed of his leprosy, he had to go back to the priest, right? So he would go to the priest, and the priest would examine him and say, yes, you are a leper, you are unclean. Over time, the leper maybe somehow miraculously is healed of this disease. He would go back before the priest. The priest would examine him and say, oh, my goodness, you're clean now. And then there was a sacrifice, a gift, an offering that Moses commanded ought to be made. And it works like this. You ready? The priest would take two small birds. One of the birds would die. The other bird would live. The bird that died, um, it would be sacrificed and its blood would be mixed in water. And then the blood of that first bird would be taken and the priest would walk up to the person that used to be a leper and would take the blood. And you know where he would put it? He would put it on his right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right big toe. Does that sound pleasant? No. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? What is really important about that is that A a sacrifice put on your earlobe, thumb, and big toe only shows up one other place in all of Leviticus. It shows up with the leper in Leviticus 13. It also shows up in Leviticus 8. Leviticus 8, Aaron and his sons are ordained as priests, and that is the ceremony they go through. So you have lepers. They're a picture of uncleanness, of separation from God and the people of God, death. What do the priests have to be all the time? Clean. Clean. Where did the priests get to serve all the time? Tabernacle. Yeah, in the tabernacle in God's presence. Uh, Who are the priests around all the time? The people. The people of God. And, And the priest, their ministry is to bring spiritual life to the people. Lepers and priests are polar opposites. Whenever the leper goes through this rite, he's going through the same ceremony Aaron and his sons went through whenever they were ordained priests. It's not that the leper is becoming a priest. He's not actually becoming a priest, but he's going through the same type of ceremony. He's no longer a picture of uncleanness and separation from God and separation from God's people. Instead, this guy is being restored. He's a person now who can go into God's presence, who can be around God's people, who is no longer unclean, who has been healed, and who has life. So you could say kind of symbolically, the leper is is made like a priest. Whenever we get saved, we go from being people who are unclean sinners, separated from God and separated from the people of God and heading toward death. And whenever we get saved, it does say that we are part of Jesus's priesthood. It says in 1 Peter 2 that you are part of Christ's priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. Now, do we offer sacrifices anymore? Not animal sacrifices. Paul says in Romans 12, though, that we offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God. We give him our life. We say, whatever you want to do with me, you can do with me. The priest, one of their main ministries, was to bring the knowledge of God to the world. And we have the opportunity to do that. We learn the gospel. We learn the things of scripture so that we can share it with others and we can make disciples. We are made priests. We go from being like the leper, and whenever Jesus saves us, we become like these priests. So this sacrifice, the the first bird is killed, its blood is put in the water, and then the blood is taken and put on the former leper's right earlobe, right thumb, and right big toe. The second bird 
So, so now we have a basin. Uh, I don't have a red marker. I was going to try to draw it on the board. I might back here. Let me try to draw this out. So we have a basin of water. And in the, in the basin of water, what are the two things in it? Blood and water. Blood and water mixed together. The second bird, something weird happens to it. The weird thing that happens to it is that the priest takes um, a piece of cedar, a stick of cedar. Uh, my markers are all dying. Let's see if the black one will work. That would be better. Some new ones. All right. No, I think I have some back there. I just need to open them up. He'll, he'll take a stick of cedar, and then he'll take um, some hyssop, and he will tie the second bird. Let's see if I can draw a bird decently. kind of a scary looking bird, all right? He'll take, he'll take some hyssop, which should be green, but we're gonna do it as, as red right now. And he ties the bird to the hyssop, to the piece of wood. And then the bird gets dipped in the blood seven times, and then he unties it and it flies free. Poor bird. Well, the, the first bird, poor bird, right? What does water and blood remind you of? Hmm? How? Did he ask for water? You remember Jesus dies really quickly on the cross. And what happens to his side? They want to make sure he's dead. What happens to his side? They stab him with a spear. Jesus probably died of suffocation because whenever you suffocate, your lungs and, and around your heart, there's a little pocket. It fills with water. Whenever they stab, what comes out of his side? Water, water and, blood. and blood. What is he attached to? A cross. A cross. What is the bird attached to? piece of wood is that bird sort of i mean you think about the bird being tied to that i haven't really drawn it well you think the bird's fighting to get off of it yeah so what do you think its wings are doing where do you do you think you're tying its wings down to the piece of wood yes maybe all right um if it's flapping its wings real hard trying to get away from you that might be hard you may be tied around its body and what might its wings its wings might be sticking out that bird looks an awful lot like it's on a cross, cross. and it's Being blood and it's, blood. It, it's blood and it's water, just like what flowed out of Christ at the cross. And this is applied to the leper, and the leper is made clean. His uncleanness, which is a picture of sin, is taken away from him because of the blood and the, because of the blood and the water that were shed for him. What happens to this bird? It flies away. What direction do you think it flies? Up. <laughs> Straight up, right? I mean, it is getting out of there, right? It, it's out. Um, it's almost like this bird is, is raised and then ascends. The first bird dies. The second bird raises and ascends. Could we almost see a picture of Jesus's resurrection and ascension into heaven there? I think we could. So through, through blood and water, through the death of, of this creature, and then through this sort of like a resurrection and ascension, this leper is saved from his leprosy. He's saved from uncleanness. Uh, he's saved symbolically from sin. And so we see in this text a, a very interesting, uh, some very interesting pictures where right in the heart of Leviticus, a couple of really hard chapters to trudge through, admittedly, but we start seeing again how the Old Testament is painting a picture here of Christ pretty clearly, right? Uh, these, these symbols in the Old Testament, uh, these sacrifices, uh, you know, if you see a guy on a cross and the idea of his blood being shed for the sins of the world, if you're somebody that knows Leviticus well, you're going to make this sort of a connection. 
Um, this is this should inform us as we think about his his cross and his resurrection. Yeah. Why was he dead seven times? What is seven? Like how many days God created the world? All right. Um, symbolically, what what does seven mean in Scripture? It's a number of completion, completion fulfillment, right? So probably something about. Um, yeah, something kind of maybe related to this it is finished idea. This is like a, a complete, uh, there's a completeness to this that's happening. Uh, it is a total thing, a final thing, something along those lines. All right. Questions on this whole leprosy thing? Didn't his one have a sponge at the end of it? Sort of. It, it would hold moisture. And this, the hyssop that the bird is tied with is also what is given to Jesus on the cross, held up to him. Remember here. Well, there's one time that they offer him gall, which is supposed to numb the pain, and he doesn't take that. He does take water on it, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yes? I'm confused as to how, like, they get the birds to sacrifice. Or do they, like, raise them in cages? Because you don't just, like, walk up to a bird in the wild and pick it up. God gives I don't know. I, 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 I am not, like, a hunter or a trapper, and so sometimes these... Those are sometimes questions I ask, like, but, but not like, you know, that seems impossible, but like today, people also sometimes trap birds. How do they do that? I don't know. It's very interesting to me. I, you would have to be a very clever person, wouldn't you? Uh, so you say cheese, just leave cheese out, and then that would work with mice. I don't know about birds. Uh, so I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. So um, tomorrow, tomorrow, we are going to talk about the Day of Atonement. I thought we would get to that today, and we didn't. Tomorrow we'll talk about the Day of Atonement and see another way that the Old Testament in Leviticus is helping us understand uh, Jesus' death and the salvation he brings. Another question? Yeah. Um, was the bird a dove? What's the text say? I think. Where would it be? That dove ain't like a mole. Well, let's let's see if we can find it. Would it be in Leviticus? Let's see. I think that part is in... Okay, it, it looks like it can be turtle doves or pigeons. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah, turtle doves or pigeons, um, looks like. And, and the laws, you guys maybe picked up on this, the laws about which animals to sacrifice um, sometimes are a little bit fluid. If you are a person of means and wealth, you maybe sacrifice this animal, but if you're a poor person um, who you know um, you don't you don't have a lot of resources, um, there are uh, accommodations made for the poor, where they can sacrifice animals that you can buy much more cheaply. Something that's interesting about that is whenever you look at the book of Luke, Jesus is born, and there is a sacrifice that Jewish people are supposed to make for newborns. And whenever Mary and Joseph, like after you have a baby, there's a sacrifice that you're supposed to make. Part of it has to do with the mom. Part of it has to do with the kid. Whenever Mary and Joseph go to the temple to offer that, they do the poor person's sacrifice. What does that tell you about Mary, Joseph, and Jesus? Yeah, they lived in relative poverty. Um, you know, Jesus on, on earth was not born into a super rich family. They were born, he was born into kind of a lower class family. All right. So I think that that is kind of an important point. Um, I'm trying to find, there's one other detail that I wanted to show you guys from this. Um, where did that go? I had it marked in another Bible so that I could find it really, really easily. Um, and I don't know where it went. Teacher, Ashley to the front. 
There is a really strange part in Leviticus 13. It's just one verse, and like I said, I can't find the exact verse just skimming over it right now, where if a person is fully leprous from head to toe, you think about it, all right, if, I'm, if I've got a leprous spot right here on my hand, and, and, then, and then Wyatt has, like, his entire upper body is leprous, which one of us, in, in your mind, would be more unclean? Why it would be. There's an interesting verse in Leviticus 13. I'll try to find the exact verse for tomorrow. Um, where if a person is totally leprous from head to foot, they're actually clean. What? And that doesn't make a lick of sense. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Because if a person is leprous from head to toe, you would think that they are the most unclean person. But... I think that this is one of those places where the Old Testament is pointing to us, uh, is kind of pointing us to a spiritual truth in the gospel. If I come before Jesus and I say, Jesus, I know that I've sinned, but I'm pretty much a good person. Two or three times in the past I've maybe messed up. I need you to take care of those. Is that what repentance is supposed to look like? No. No. Um, If I come to Jesus and I say, uh, Jesus, uh, you know, I I know that I am a sinner, um, but I'm not nearly as bad as those other people. Is that what repentance looks like? Whenever we come to Jesus, we make the confession that we are sinners through and through. We are unclean through and through. Right? Um, you know, I'm not an axe murderer. I'm, I'm, I'm not an adulterer. You know, there are big sins that I haven't committed. But have I loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and my neighbor as myself? And the Lord Jesus says that if you break one part of the law, you've broken what? The whole thing. I, we are to come before Jesus and basically say, I'm a leper from, from head to foot. But the great news of the gospel is, if we come to Jesus with that attitude and with that confession, what are we? We're clean. Because whenever we come to Jesus with that confession and that attitude, he's going to make us clean. He's going to forgive us. If we come to him and say, thoroughly and completely, I need you to be the Savior, not of part of my life, but of the whole life. Then, then Christ makes us clean. So I think that that is um, a, a place where Leviticus, you know, taken very literally, it's like, huh, that doesn't make sense. Why did Israel do it that way? But I think that God put that there to point them to a, a greater truth about their, their spiritual lives. So we'll close with that. Uh, and then uh, tomorrow we'll pick up with the Day of Atonement. So you guys 